From the American Association of Nurse Practitioners, I'm the host of today's special edition episode, NP Education Specialist Eve Roberts, and this is NP Pulse, the voice of the nurse practitioner. Welcome to NP Pulse, AMP's official podcast bringing you unique nurse practitioner voices and expertise on issues that matter to NPs and our patients. Approximately 25% of patients with diabetes have chronic kidney disease. The prevalence is estimated to increase to 54% due to the rising number of cases of diabetes and the high prevalence of obesity. In this episode, you'll be listening to our experts discuss the ins and outs of chronic kidney disease in patients with diabetes. Today, we welcome two expert guests who will be talking about the management of diabetic kidney disease from a patient-focused standpoint. I'm excited to bring you nurse practitioners, Timothy Ray and Debbie Hennon. Welcome to this episode of AANP's CKD and Type 2 Diabetes podcast. My name is Timothy Ray. I'm a nephrology nurse practitioner. I've been in nephrology for about 21 years as a nurse practitioner. I work with dialysis and CKD patients. I also do a lot of work with NP students and teaching both locally and nationally with uh, presentations. I also work on the Nurse Practitioner Nephrology Test Committee and Board and writing the uh, test questions for the uh, Nephrology National Board Review and really enjoyed working with ANP on this discussion as I try and do a lot of education around this topic. And my co-host is uh, Debbie Hennon, and I'm just gonna have her introduce herself before we get started. Thanks, Tim. Gosh, you know, I think if I just took out nephrology and put in diabetes, our introductions would be very similar. I'm an advanced practice nurse in Colorado Springs, working at the University of Colorado Health, and we have a diabetes clinic that's a nurse-run clinic. Uh, there are three dietitians that we keep pretty busy, but we do full-time diabetes, uh, insulin pumps, glucose sensors, you know, start medications, GLPs, SGLT2s, and then also uh, patient education. So I kind of have the best of all worlds because I get to do clinical work and get to uh, teach the evening class. But I have a couple of faculty appointments and have graduate students both uh, in Colorado and at Wichita State and love to have the opportunity to speak and publish and uh, do those kinds of things as part of professional development. But gosh, I'm excited to work with you as an expert in nephrology. I do diabetes. So let's kick this off by me asking you, why is diabetes so prevalent in kidney patients? Well, it really comes down to the, how the hyperglycemia affects the glomerulus of uh, the kidney. And, you know, diabetes is so prevalent uh, in causing damage throughout the body in terms of retinopathy and neuropathy, and uh, we're focusing on the nephropathy part of it. But long-term, that hyperglycemia can affect things at a very cellular level and it changes the kidney uh, glomerulus structurally over time. It can take many years, 
And so people can have diabetes for, you know, five or six years before we see any significant kidney dysfunction starting, but it can have a very dramatic effect on patients' lives. About 35% of the people on dialysis are on because of diabetes, uh, almost closer to 40% probably now. The amount has progressed significantly in the 21 years I've been doing this. It used to be in the low 30s when I first started. So I think as people are living longer, we're having more trouble with obesity and diabetes being so prevalent, it's really cause much more problems with our patients and causing more uh, CKD problems with our patient population. What about you, Deb, in terms of your patients? You know, when you uh, were starting to answer that question, it made me think about how I explain uh, kidney disease in my patient education classes, because the prevalence of kidney disease is directly related to how long people have elevated glucose levels. Right. And when I first started in diabetes decades ago, there really wasn't data to confirm that good blood sugar control made a difference. We, in our practice, believed it did, passionately believed it did. But I'll tell you, many patients did not have the leadership from their clinical team to help them work toward good control. And when the blood sugars are high, you know, it's microvascular disease related to the kidneys. So I'll explain to my patients those little teeny blood vessels in the eyes and in the kidneys. Think about that. The glucose that is above target is fluctuating, flowing, going through every blood vessel, and that glucose attaches itself to the muscle walls. And then when there is a thickening of that basement, membrane, those lysine chains separate and things stretch out. So so think about fishnet hose. You know, those things could easily leak out those big holes if that's your blood vessels. And so that would be protein leak that we might be able to detect. Now in the eyes, of course, we can see exudates and microaneurysms because we can look in the eye. Mm-hmm. But the kidney is much more difficult for for kind of a direct kind of confirmation. But why is it so prevalent in, in uh, kidney patients? High blood sugars for decades and decades, to me, would, would be the, the short answer. Yeah, I really explained to the patient that the smallest blood vessels in the body are in the eyes, the kidneys, and the tips of the hands and the feet. And that's where we see the problems. And so that they're going to have poorly controlled diabetes for a period of time. They're going to end up with those uh, changes and that we cannot stop that uh, progression, but we can only slow it down. And so controlling their sugars over time, working closely with their primary care providers and the diabetic educators and uh, practitioners are really what they need to do to try and slow the progress so they hopefully never end up on dialysis. So some patients have had diabetes for years before they're diagnosed. What kind of clues do we need to look at to see how long they've been a diabetic? What do you look at? People with diabetes start to have pre-diabetes probably 7 to 10 years on average before anyone diagnoses their diabetes. And the American Diabetes Association has really worked very hard to develop risk 
tests, risk assessments. But when you look clinically for what are the clues, the, the uh, simplest one is when people get their annual labs done. If they, for instance, are fasting because they're having a lipid profile and they have a CMP, glucose is one of the tests. And so a fasting glucose above 100 is prediabetes. Now, shame on us, as, a, as an aggregate clinical group, we typically say something like, oh, your fasting blood sugar is a little bit high. Watch what you eat and exercise and, and uh, you know, we'll check it next year. Well, so when year rolls around and all that five gallons of blood work is drawn again, and now the fasting glucose is 108. And so again, you know, the advice is uh, watch what you eat and, uh, you know, maybe lose a few pounds. But this, on average, goes on for seven to 10 years before anyone is diagnosed with full diabetes. That, of course, is a fasting glucose of 126, and it should be repeated. Or if it's a random glucose, it would be 200 or above. Or if there's a family history, hopefully the provider's getting the A1C. And the A1C, that's that three-month average of glucoses, would be full-blown diabetes when the A1C is 6.5 or above. But when you say, what can we do to watch for signs and clues earlier? Pre-diabetes is an A1C of 5.7 to 6.4. So we've got glucose, we've got A1Cs, we've got the the hypertension, dyslipidemia, and diabetes that all go hand in hand. So anyone with dyslipidemia or hypertension, that provider needs to be also asking, gosh, is there diabetes in your family? So hopefully that family history is also kind of a red flag for more screening. But I've got to tell you, Tim, if we can catch prediabetes, there are now nationally recognized credentialed programs from CDC that focus on diabetes prevention. And those programs are all over the country. Insurance companies are paying for it. Medicare pays for it. So if we can catch someone very early while they're on that, that path, that yellow brick road, you know, we can maybe get them into some uh, good intervention programs to delay diabetes. So prevention is really the key. If we can kind of catch people early, we can slow that process. Oh, my yes. And I absolutely, I completely agree. And, you know, if we see somebody in the office that is obese, if they have hypertension, if there's little clues that sometimes tell you, hey, we need to check to see if you have any sugar problems. And especially if there's a family history of that. So I think that's really key to help catch things early so that we can intervene and slow that progress. But fast forward to kind of our focus on kidney disease. If, if patients have had diabetes for decades, they have had very elevated glucose levels and been out of control. How might they tell that they have kidney disease? Well, I think that's part of the trouble. It's, it's as with many diseases, it's, uh, you know, they call hypertension the silent killer. But kidney failure is also a silent factor the only way to really tell is through blood work or urine tests. You can't tell somebody has kidney disease just by looking at them. So we also tell through regular blood work. And very often it's caught randomly. Somebody's 
hopefully is going to see their primary care provider on a regular basis as they get older, especially if they have any underlying comorbidities. They should be getting regular blood work to, to see that. So catch that out. And But we tell people if they have urine that has any kind of foaming urine that would be indicative of significant proteinuria, that would be a clue to us. Obviously, they have any kind of diabetes symptoms uh, or hypertension symptoms, that would be the clue to us to look for kidney failure. So, Tim, I might jump in with patient teaching. When I teach the patient education classes, I have the American Diabetes Association standards of care on what we call a to-do list. Right, which is great. And so the call to action for people with diabetes is to get all of their annual screening. And so the the GFR, of course, is embedded in the Comprehensive Metabolic Panel. So people who are getting their annual labs will get that. But the other recommendation is a urine test. And now, thankfully, it's a dipstick and not that big giant brown jug where they have to collect for 24 hours and keep it chilled. <laughs> but, but I see that missed all the time. So really engaging patients in being responsible, we... We call this not the standards of care. We call it in our clinic, your to-do list. Exactly. So you may get a lot. Yeah, you may get a lot of blood drawn once a year, but you be sure you say to the doctor, now that bossy diabetes nurse said I need to give you a urine sample. <laughs> so that, of course, would be the urine albumin creatinine ratio. Yeah. And I'm just amazed at how many times people come into the hospital, because I work primarily in the hospital, uh, not at an outpatient clinic, but people come to the hospital for something else, and they ha they don't get a UA, and the urine tests are so inexpensive, it's non-invasive the majority of times, and it tells so much information. So if just getting a, a regular UA, especially if somebody has those comorbidities, that would help give you some clues. But one of the things I also want to just explain is that as people age, their kidneys age as well, just like all other body systems. So that from about the age of 40 on, we lose about 1% of our kidney function per year. So people that are 65, 70, 80 years old, they are going to have some kidney dysfunction just from age-related changes alone. And then you add on top of that uh, things like diabetes and hypertension and all the other problems that develop that can just magnify the issue. So people can have underlying kidney disease uh, just from age-related changes. And, but again, we can't tell that without looking at the blood work. And checking the urine is really important to check not only for diabetes, but check to see if there's some other problems. Because things like urinary tract infections and other uh, problems can develop that can worsen kidney function as well. So Debbie, if I was a patient came to you with type 2 diabetes, what do you do to work with your patients, preventing that progression to more problems down the road? Well, I think we've uh, touched on how important good glycemic control is, but hand-in-hand uh, -hand with that is hypertension management. And it's equally important that people have their blood pressure well controlled. So, so our piece of it always as the providers and prescribers is to be sure we have people on the right medications. And now, of course, the standards of care 
are very clear that GLPs and SGLT2 inhibitors should be prescribed right after metformin. But as the person with diabetes, their lifestyle is their number one job. So careful eating, um, losing some weight, exercising, uh, being sure they're monitoring blood pressure, blood glucose. And, and today we see the glucose meters all have the tiniest amount of blood required for the test strip. Many of the meters now Bluetooth the data to your phone, and then you can download the app and see trends over time. But the, the thing that is really a game changer that's happened within the past year or so are the glucose sensors. And many of the insurance companies are covering the continuous glucose sensors. So, I mean, they advertised on the Super Bowl, for goodness sake. So that sort of patient-driven um, request to help them be able to monitor the diabetes has made a big change. We see A1C drops when people can see their numbers. It's difficult to do a occasional random finger stick and be able to take any action. People need to be able to do pattern management. I teach this all the time, whether people are on insulin or whether they're on oral agents. Your fasting blood sugars, the overnight report, so leaky liver, metformins, what fixes that, and your blood sugars after meals are the pancreas report. Can your pancreas squirt in enough insulin to take care of what you're eating? Oh, carbs all turn into sugar? Oh, we need to modify the amount of carbohydrate. So when people have that data, they can monitor glucose. And I heard you say, please be sure you're checking blood pressures at home. So, so I would say when you put that lifestyle, intensive lifestyle into play, that's going to be the patient's number one responsibility. And that's going to be our greatest hope for delaying if you and I have prescribed the right medications to go with that. What, what do you think? Yeah, I'm sure for some patients, this is all very overwhelming. And where do you encourage patients to say to their practitioners, hey, I don't understand all this. Is there some other kind of support like diabetes educator or things like that. So when do you want them to start seeing people like you? Because sometimes patients go to their primary care providers and they that's all they see. But at some point, just like going to my standpoint, going to nephrology, follow up with a, a more specialty practice is helpful. At what point do you like to do that? I love that you asked that question because I spoke to the Nurse Practitioner Fellowship Program this week and I said to them, metformin's the number one prescribed medication. In fact, prescribed in prediabetes by a lot of visionary providers. But as important as that first prescription is your referral to diabetes education. Comprehensive diabetes education has data showing an equal A1C drop to many of the diabetes medications. So thank you for reminding me to uh, encourage our listeners to write that referral for comprehensive diabetes education as soon as someone's diagnosed. And, and you're right, it's overwhelming. The American Diabetes Association says the patient with diabetes should be offered diabetes education when they're first diagnosed 
and annually thereafter. They should be offered diabetes education when there's a major change. Like our discussion topic today, kidney disease, oh my gosh, that, that makes people's heads spin. Right. And then if there's a change in their therapy, for instance, someone goes on insulin. So so that has just come out in the last year or so. Yeah. And so it it's really behooves us to r- remind our colleagues to make sure they are best friends with the diabetes educators and dietitians in their community. Right. Yeah, because things change uh, so quickly in healthcare is that there's so many new therapies and other things that come out and other data and uh, things that drive practice. And so somebody may have been on a metformin or some other uh, medication for years and, oh, I've been doing fine with that. Right. And their bodies change with time too. Mm-hmm. So that having that repeated uh, education and input to see, okay, am I doing the right thing? Is this, there's something else new out there that might help improve things a little bit more is great. Not everybody's open-minded, as your comments suggest. Sometimes we have to create that teachable moment. Absolutely. So when someone says to me, Debbie, I've had diabetes 20 years. I know this. That's right. I'll say, oh my gosh, have you seen? And then I'll pull out a sensor or, you know, one of the new insulin pins. Right. Or if someone's really resistant, I'll say something like, would you consider reviewing this article for me? I want to share it with my patients in diabetes class, but I really would like uh, your opinion on it before I do that. That's a great idea. Yeah. So then, you know, you you give somebody something that you know is a challenge, and when they come out on the other side and say, wow, I didn't realize all that, you have that right. tiny little toe in the door to be able to say, oh my gosh, well, let's get you in a refresher. Right, absolutely. Because it can be overwhelming and people get in ruts and they get on in their life and they don't realize that uh, sometimes they need a little refresher. Right. Uh, with a lot of things, as we all do. Absolutely. So, so let me ask you, Tim, how do patients with type 2 diabetes and uh, chronic kidney disease manage their diabetes medications differently? Uh, than if they didn't have kidney disease? Well, a lot of it goes back to understanding that a lot of the medications are metabolized by the kidneys or excreted by the kidneys. So um, insulin is to go way back uh, before a lot of the oral medications were around when insulin was developed uh, and discovered many, many years ago. As I explained to my patients, if I gave you 10 units of insulin, regular insulin, just go to the very basic and me 10 units of regular insulin, my body would use up what it needs and I would pee out the rest. And people with kidney disease can't do that as well. The worse your kidney disease is, the more advanced the kidney disease, the longer the insulin lasts in the body. And so any of the medications that stimulate the pancreas to produce more insulin, their own insulin lasts longer. And some of the other medications last longer as well because of the longer half-life. And so it becomes... Uh, much more pronounced in terms of people who get more hypoglycemic in later kidney disease. Now, some of the newer medications, thankfully, can be used in later kidney disease and even people on dialysis. But knowing your medications and the side effects, the pharmacokinetics of them uh, are very important because some of our patients can become quite hypoglycemic. Understanding people could die quickly from hypoglycemia they, they really don't die of hyperglycemia quickly. 
So in advanced kidney disease, we are very careful about talking to our patients with type 2 diabetes. It's about watching their sugars. If they start getting hemoglobin A1Cs less than 6, then we start worrying, are they uh, developing uh, episodes of hypoglycemic uh, and uh, things like that. So just knowing your medications is really important. Yes. When you talked about the insulin, it reminded me of one of my peritoneal dialysis patients who at our last visit, we agonized for, I don't know how long, over should he be on seven units of Levomir or eight units of Levomir? Yeah. Well, typically Levomir doesn't last 24 hours and it has to be BID. But as you pointed out, there is a longer duration. The PKPD changes. Levomir indeed lasts 24 hours. And that dinky little dose is not enough typically for anybody to have any kind of reasonable glucose control. But because of the changes in kidney disease, that's the amount he needs. And luckily, he had a, a Libre glucose sensor. He, so we could look at all of that data, and indeed, we could tell where his low blood sugars were dipping just a little bit. That's amazing. That's great. And in fact, because Levomir has a little bit of a peak on it, even delayed, of course, with his kidney disease, we moved the time of his Levomir so it would coincide with a meal and give him a little more oomph when his blood sugars went up with food. Right. But but it's it's just a whole different world because you think Levomir twice a day doesn't last 24 hours, not in kidney disease. It may be a full 24-hour basal. I'm going to go off on a tangent here, but the sensor is very similar to what we've done with hypertension in terms of we do 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure machines. We have somebody take a blood pressure machine at home and they wear it for 24, even sometimes 48 hours. So we checks their blood pressure every 10 to 15 minutes for those period of time. And sometimes we, we don't change the medication. We change the timing of when they get the medication because, because our, our blood pressures, just like our sugars, vary through the day. And so sometimes just changing the timing of when we give those medications can really benefit the patient. A lot of times we find giving medications at night help. So it's, it's interesting, the sensor part of it, uh, the data really helps care for our patients better. So we've talked about the medications, and I, I think that's such fascinating conversation. But anemia happens in CKD. How does that affect the A1C, Tim? So anemia develops in later stage kidney disease because of the uh, lessening of the erythropoietin that is produced by the kidneys. Um, and that's a whole nother topic in and of itself. But so in late stage kidney disease, uh, our renal patients tend to get quite anemic. And because the hemoglobin A1C evaluates the glycolated hemoglobin, and that's how it uh, checks to see what the, in a sense, the average blood sugar is over a period of time, uh, it depends on, on the red blood cell. And because patients are anemic, um, kidney patients tend to have a shorter uh, period of time that the red blood cells are uh, around. There's a lot more destruction, especially if they're on dialysis. There's loss of blood on dialysis. You know, every time they go to dialysis, there's a little bit of blood that's lost in the system. Uh, people get blood transfusions, they get erythropoietin, they get iron and B12 and those kind of things. 
things that change the how the anemia is managed over time. So that will affect the hemoglobin A1C uh, levels. And we have to watch that accordingly. Uh, so we really encourage, like you had said yesterday, that they check their blood sugars a lot more carefully because of the uh, variability of their blood sugars as well as to, to help manage it better, not just following the hemoglobin A1C. Thank you. So we have um, patients, I know I'm sure you do, uh, that have terrible uh, neuropathic pain. So getting away from the nephropathy, but in terms of neuropathy, pain from diabetes, what kind of medications do you generally have that your patients utilize for the neuropathic pain? Because that does have an influence on the kidney disease. So that's a, a great question. And of course, our people with neuropathy have multiple other complications. And when we're trying to help people understand it, I think very counterintuitive because that tingling, burning, I can't stand the sheets on my feet at night is early symptomatology. And after people have high blood sugars for a period of time and the myelin sheath is destroyed is when we begin to hear people talk about pain. And that is much more progressive neuropathy. But of course, it can go to total numbness. And people say to me all the time, oh, thank God, my feet don't hurt anymore. And I say to patients, oh, my God, your feet don't hurt anymore. Don't hurt. Right, right. Because that's when somebody may step on something, not know it, have a foot infection, have bone infection, have osteo, have gangrene, and then lose a toe. So, so that is sort of the end disaster of neuropathy. But that neuropathic pain stops everything in people's lives. So I, of course, am always saying, you, we have two things we have to do here. We have to have good blood sugar control because if you still have feeling, there's a fair amount of data out there that suggests that myelin sheath can regenerate. Good blood sugar control is one of the things that helps that happen. But then the other things that may help that happen, surprisingly, um, Metanex, which is vitamin B6, B12, folic acid, and now the newest version of that has some fish oil in it, some omega-3s. But we always try to help people treat the pain. And we can do that, and we have to do that, but we can't lose sight of good glucose control while we're doing that. So gabapentin, of course, is, as we all know, the generic number one starting point. And, and I typically start people on 100 milligrams TID, have them titrate it not more often than weekly. 300 milligrams TID is, is typically what I'm comfortable prescribing. And I see neurologists go much higher than that. Uh, Lyrica, of course, is pre-Gabalin, so it's not generic, but, but those are probably the most common ones. Alpha-lipoic acid, capsation, there's a number of other things that can be used. I know gabapentin is um, excreted in the kidneys, but would you talk to us about that in kidney disease later on? What's our heads up there? Well, a lot of medications are metabolized or excreted by the kidneys. And so these medications are, are no different. And we see patients that it does help the neuropathy. It helps the pain. It helps them get through, through their day. But the difficulty is for people with advanced kidney disease, 
a lot of these medications can develop significant neurological side effects. Even at lower doses, what we typically see is things like tremors or some weakness. Uh, people have trouble walking, all of a sudden they just fall or they lose their balance, can develop hallucinations, confusion. People think, well, they're having a stroke, things like that, when it's just a side effect from a medication. So in advanced kidney disease, maybe they're stable CKD stage 3B, and they've been that way for a time, and they are in a certain amount of like gabapentin 100 milligrams TID, and they're well controlled, and all of a sudden they get this urinary tract infection, or they get dehydrated, and they had developed some AKI, and all of a sudden their GFR drops significantly because of that AKI, and then the gabapentin becomes symptomatic. So we get people that come in all the time with symptomatic side effects from the gabapentin and Lyrica. So these are wonderful medications, but to just be aware, tell my patients specifically, if you start developing an intention tremor, you go to pick up a glass and you just start shaking, and it's bilateral. It's not going to be a unilateral thing. It's a bilateral tremor, uh, or you just have some weakness or you're more confused. To think about, okay, could this be a medication problem or, or have they changed the medication? Um, so those are the things we always look about in kidney patients. And people on dialysis, again, it, it, it is used in dialysis, but we try and stay away from the Lyrica because of the longer half-life than even gabapentin. But we try and stay 300 milligrams or less of gabapentin uh, total for a dialysis patient. Interesting. Very interesting. And so are there other responsibilities for the patient in managing diabetes and, and kidney disease? As nurses and nurse practitioners, we are very good at trying to work with patients and, and help them with self-care. Because if we can get our patients to buy into their care and buy into their treatment and understand why they're doing things, they do so much better at it. And so ultimately, we can only do so much with our patients. We can give them all the information. We can provide all the resources, but ultimately they have to do it. We can just be an encouraging provider and be a resource for them and everything. But really, it, you know, as you and I know, there's patients that we've done everything we can and they still don't do what they need to do. So I think it's just trying to encourage them and be there for them and, and show them that if they can care for themselves, they're going to do much better. I totally agree. And you know that saying, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. I think that's at the foundation of everything we do. Absolutely. But then I think we have to transition to, you know, I will get in this boat with you and we will both row this boat. Right. But it's important that we kind of divide who needs to do what and be sure that you're focused on your responsibilities and I'm doing my part of it as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that transition to self-management and patient empowerment is, I think, um, always a challenge for us. Uh, but motivational interviewing, for instance, is something that kind of can help us because we lay out a lot of things that we expect people to do. And, and we have to do small steps. We spend a lot of time setting goals 
and then stopping in a month or so or at the next clinic visit and saying, so so how did you do on monitoring? And and so there's no blood sugar meter, there's no data, there's, you know, I'm tickled when I get blood sugars written on the back of the electric bill envelope. <laughs> right, right. You know, I want to see some data. Uh, you know, we say, gosh, go into your diabetes visit without your glucose meter, without your glucose data. It's like going to the vet without your pet. <laughs> so so we, we have to, I think, uncover the barriers. And sometimes just offering support and encouragement isn't enough. We have to know what's, what's it getting in the way of you doing blood sugar monitoring. Absolutely. And and so when someone says, I can't afford the strips, uh, you know, it's like, holy Toledo. Well, let's look at, is your insurance company helping pay for that? If not, you know, Dr. Klonoff, who does all the accuracy testing on glucose meters, in his last round of testing, found the Walmart Rely on Prime meter was in the top 10 for accuracy. Wow. Wow. The meter and Lansing device are $11. 50 test strips are $9. Yeah. So for 20 bucks, people can kind of really get going with it. So, so cost, if we don't proactively ask about that, that's one that we very often need to dig just a little bit to try to uncover. Because we can't say, you're not adherent, you're non-compliant. We just haven't figured out what the barrier is to help to keep them from being able to do it. Right. It's so frustrating, though. We come see patients that they spend money on cigarettes, but they can't spend money on, on test strips and things like that. Right. It's very, very difficult. It is very difficult. Yeah. If you have, we have patients with uh, kidney disease and you see them for type 2 diabetes, what kind of medications do you choose and the different classes of medications for people with type 2 diabetes as they progress through kidney disease? How do you decide what to go with? This has gotten so much easier in just the last few years. Because when I first started in diabetes, all we had was insulin, mm -hmm. old-fashioned animal source insulin. That's how old I am. Yeah, I, I remember that. <laughs> yeah, and Matt Foreman. Fire was still experimental when I started in diabetes work. and But the... Um, newest medications and the guidelines from our big diabetes organizations, the Kedago, the American Diabetes Association, they are very clear with guidance that we should be following. And so right after metformin, our next choice should be an SGLT2 inhibitor. Mm, absolutely. And that medication is going to uh, work, focus on the distal tubules and the kidneys, and instead of recirculating all that glucose that hits the kidney, you know, and in type 2 diabetes, that, that renal threshold is about 240. So that's a lot of glucose that goes round and round and round. But the SGLT2s block the, the SGLT2 portals, the channels in the distal tubules, and push that glucose right on out the urine. That seems like a, a real game changer. It really is just amazing. Mm -hmm. I remember when EPO came out for anemia back in the late 80s, and that was a game changer for our, for our kidney patients with anemia. And this, the SGL2 inhibitors are just like too good to be true data. It is. Oh. But it's, it's, we're keeping our fingers crossed, but it seems like it's panning out. So absolutely. 
It is. And the data is coming out hand over fist, study after study, to show that the uh, SGLT2s slow the slope. They they don't totally flatten the GFR, yep. but they change the slope of that GFR. Yep. They also, of course, are pushing out fluid, so they're going to help with blood pressure. A sodium takes a glucose with it. A glucose takes a sodium with it. Yep. So that's going to help blood pressure about four points systolically. You're pushing out glucose, you're pushing out calories. So there's six to eight pounds of weight loss just from the effect of the drug. Right, right. So so there's cardiovascular benefit, there's renal benefit. And and just generally speaking, if someone's already got a GFR that's below 45, you may start with the lowest dose of your SGLT2. That's the formulary preference. Uh, but but we're seeing, of course, uh, uh, canagliflozin already has that renal indication. Um, dapagliflozin has the studies done, and their data is in front of FDA right now. Impagliflozin has the studies underway, and so that, of course, will be in front of FDA soon. So that has, as you say, been the game changer. Absolutely. Now, are you seeing GLPs as well? in uh, CKD, Tim? You know, not as much. I think there's some, but I think there's still some resistance. When patients have kidney disease, I think people hold off on starting these new medications for a while just to kind of see how they work. I think that it's starting to, to happen, but we've seen patients do very, very well with them and with a lot of medications. And it's just, as with anything, you you have to watch for potential side effects. You know, for metformin, uh, it's been out there for a long time, and we always used to worry about the acidosis aspect of it, and now we're finding that it doesn't happen as often, so we're able to, to utilize and push it a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. We're able to push the ACEs a little bit longer in the ARBs, and we're able to use medications as long as we can watch for the side effects and, and anticipate the problems that may come along with them. But it really comes down to communication and monitoring and following those trends and everybody's different. There's some patients that do great with something and somebody else that doesn't. And so we're all different. And that's where it's really key to, to having the, the follow-up and telling the patients what to watch for, because things can happen. Patients that may have been on medication for years, all of a sudden start developing problems because their kidney function starts worsening, or they go into an AKI aspect of things. So Uh, doing education about the side effects and what to watch for is really important. You know, I just have to circle back to the GLPs, though, because they can be used with GFRs all the way down. Right, right. I mean, maybe when someone starts dialysis, you would back off. Right. But that is a new medication class that gives us so much more safety. Yeah, they don't cause the hypoglycemic problems, which is great. Exactly, exactly. And they have, they help address five of the eight major metabolic defects in type 2 diabetes. So they help with insulin release. They help the liver calm down and quit dumping out so much sugar. They also speak to the brain and tell people, you are full. You are not hungry. So there's another 8, 10, 12 pounds of weight loss with the GLPs. Right, absolutely. And many of them are once a week. Right. So the hassle factor isn't there. So I just think if we can do metformin, SGLT2, GLP, 
If we have to add a baby dose of basal insulin, we can. And then all of the expertise you bring to the table on diuretics and blood pressure, we've got a more simple diabetes clinical glycemic approach. So how do you teach people about hyperglycemic awareness? Because we see that when people start late stage kidney disease, they start having low sugars. And how do you teach patients what to watch for? That's such a hot topic in the diabetes world right now. And, and just in general, when I'm working with somebody who's not having kidney disease yet, I give them specific assignments and I revisit that as their uh, kidney disease worsens. But I ask people, at what blood sugar do you feel symptoms? And, and what are those symptoms? And of course, the national recommendation is 15 grams of carbohydrate, wait 15 minutes, recheck the blood sugar. But, you know, people say to me sometimes, I, I had a gentleman recently say, Debbie, tell me about those carbohydrates. <laughs> so so I, I say to patients, you need to have a sweet bite. And that's not a Snickers bar. You know, that's a pure sugar, hard candy, five or six lifesavers, three or four glucose tabs, something that you can carry with you all the time. Yes. Yep. Absolutely. You can't carry orange juice. Don't use orange juice. Don't use a can of Pepsi or Coke. Right. Use a sweet bite that you can carry with you all the time. Well, and that I just want to interrupt real quick. The You mentioned the orange juice. That is so key in our patients because patients in the hospital and other things, they drink orange juice to get their sugar up because of the high potassium aspect of the citrus in orange juice. We get patients that get hyperkalemic very quickly. So if there is a dialysis patient, very advanced to not use orange juice, to apple juice and things like that is very important uh, because of the potential for the hyperkalemia. Excellent point. Well, and you know, the other thing as things deteriorate, people who consistently have glucose levels of 54, that's now considered level two, um, should have glucagon prescribed. And now there's Baxemi nasal spray glucagon that care partners can give intuitively. The ease of use studies showed greater than 90% success. Right. And, and GVOC has a pre-filled uh, hypopin that's, that's like an EpiPen. So care partners who have to deliver that uh, can do it much easier than the old-fashioned uh, glucagon that you had the diluent in the syringe, and you had to put it in the bottle where the lipolized tablet was and pull it out and inject it with a needle that looks like a garden hose. <laughs> so so th that severe hypoglycemia can be treated more effectively. But, but what happens between that and severe hypoglycemia is hypoglycemia unawareness. Right, right. And that autonomic neuropathy is very frightening because people don't have those first symptoms, those those beta adrenergic, shaky, hungry, sweaty feelings. Yes. They have those very subtle headache, confusion. And that's someone who's got blood sugar probably below 50. Right. So if they're older and they have some of those symptoms already, that it's harder to tell. Absolutely. And I know there's some medications that block those symptoms as well in terms of the beta blockers cause the problem. So if patients in the 60s and 70s with some CAD, a lot of them are on beta blockers as well. And they may block the symptoms of, of the sugars. Very scary. 
I think it's also very important to educate the family members, the people around them to what to watch for, because the, the patients may not pick up on the clues, but other people can. Absolutely. When someone says, you're having low blood sugar, and the person with diabetes says, I am fine, that's someone who's having low blood sugar. Exactly. So I remember years and years ago, my grandmother, we were at a party and she she had diabetes for about four or five years. And she was sitting there and I was a brand new nurse. She got diaphoretic. She got more confused. And I knew what was happening and nobody else did. And she didn't pick it up either. And I offered her a cookie or something, and within a few minutes, she was fine. But so having other people around the person aware of what to look for, because the patient may not do that. Thank goodness for you and your expertise. Did you move into number one grandson status right then? (laughs) Very quickly. (laughs) Good. Oh, hey, Tim, let's uh, shift gears just a little bit. We've talked about a lot of really um, amazing new medications. How do your patients afford those? I think cost is really a number one barrier for patients. And and I think prescribers don't prescribe because they assume patients can't afford. What's what's your coaching on that? Well, my patients especially because when you have kidney problems, and not only you have the diabetes, you have the hypertension, you have the bone and mineral metabolism problems, then they have gout and they have other problems. We have some patients that are on 10 or 12 different medications. And sometimes they pay more for their medications than they pay for their mortgage or their house. I just can't even imagine. So absolutely, I think we see a lot of patients that come in and we think, oh, they're not adherent, they're not compliant. And as you said before, trying to get back to why and understanding, is it a cost factor? Is it, you know, there's lots of different potential reasons. There are so many resources out there. Thankfully, the pharmaceutical companies do provide some support, especially for some of the newer medications. But even the older medications, some of the the Walmarts and the different stores out there, they have programs that you can get $4 medications. You can get things that, that have been generic for a long time. And Thankfully, some of the EMRs now, at least the one in the hospitals that I go to, when we prescribe, when they do the discharge planning, they will pop up the choices of medications based on their medication profile and the pharmacy they're using. They'll give how much it's going to cost. And I think that's good for the providers to understand and see because our patients aren't going to take a medication if they can't afford it. So working with them, trying to find a generic version if possible, or finding some support, utilizing the social workers and other support people to to work with them on that is, is really, really helpful. I spend a lot of time on this with my patients. In fact, I have primary care providers that refer patients to me because I'll spend more time trying to help them get affordable meds. Yep. So you mentioned pharmaceutical but the copay cards are, of course, available for people on commercial insurance. Even those people who have the exchange with a $5,000 deductible, they can use those copay cards. But our Medicaid, Medicare, and TRICARE patients cannot. The government will not allow them to use those copay cards. So we are really struggling, I think, for those populations. Right. 
And and so our, our Medicaid patients, for instance, may be able to get medications at the community clinics that have a 430B program. The nurse practitioner group I spoke with uh, this week is getting Trulicity on their 430B program starting April 1st. I was stunned. So if they've got it in their pharmacy, it'll be close to $12. Wow. So those kinds of resources we don't typically think about. Right. With COVID, all of the diabetes companies have really stepped up to the line. The insulin companies who get the worst bashing of anybody have done the most to address costs. And they all have uh, separate programs now that will make the Lily, for instance, as of January, started $35 a month maximum for seniors. Wow, that's great. Well, we typically get nothing for seniors. Uh, Sanofi has a value program at $99 per, per, per month, and that's a max of 10 so you could have five boxes of Lantus or or Saliqua or Tejeo and five boxes of mealtime insulin. And they now have uh, Lyspro generic or biosimilar. So, so there's some really amazing kind of support programs out there. Novo has raised their patient assistance to 400% of poverty. So a family of two can make almost $100,000 and still qualify for free medications. Well, that's wonderful. Yeah, that's great. And Novo has a very broad portfolio. So I think we have a lot more resources than maybe we realize. Um, And I think the cost of medications, while it's horrible, I think companies, uh, foundations, community programs the pharmacies, as you mentioned, are stepping up to the line. And and if I could just say one more thing, our EMR has that kind of medication formulary information embedded. So when I start to write an SGLT2, it may say, but this one is going to be blah, blah, blah. That's not always accurate. And for people that don't have that resource, the app I use on my phone every day is called Formulary Search. It's a little blue and green clover leaf, and it is accurate 90, 95% of the time. So you put in the name of the drug, you put in commercial Medicaid, Medicare, and then the third thing it asks is what state are you in? And then it's color-coded. It'll pop up with Blue Cross and Aetna and all of the insurance companies, and it'll give you green if it's preferred. It'll give you yellow if it's covered, but you might have to do a prior auth, or it'll give you a red dot if it is not covered. So so that helps me tremendously. And so then I'll write a script that I think with pretty 90, 95% confidence is going to be the right one. But then because I'm a nervous Nelly, I'll go ahead and electronically send it to the pharmacy and I'll keep working with the patient, do a foot exam or, you know, keep going with the assessment. And then in five minutes, I'll call the pharmacy and say, would you please run that prescription I just sent? And they will be able to tell me what the out-of-pocket cost is so my patient knows right then before they leave the office if they can afford it. That's great. That's really nice to have those options. Absolutely. 
We can do all we want with medications, but if they're not going to actually take them, it doesn't do them any good. I know you had said before you don't have many patients that are on dialysis, uh, but do you manage your patients with diabetes differently once they do start dialysis? Well, I think as you've pointed out, we have to be very conscious of the medications and how those time actions and PKPD change. Um, But I think the emotional support is the other thing that's uh, sometimes pretty overwhelming. You know, I think you have uh, probably the best opportunity of all because you're in a clinic that has a lot of specialties. How do you see the diabetes managed with all of the different players that are involved in diabetes management from, from where you sit? Well, so many of our patients with diabetes, especially as they get older, we have to manage the diabetes, the hypertension, the anemia, the bone and marrow metabolism problem, the fluid and electrolyte problems, the nutritional problems. Uh, We have to take it as the big picture. We have to understand that it's part of the treatment for the whole patient. We try and use resources, people similar to you, that do an excellent job of trying to manage the diabetes part of it while we help manage some of the other things. But it's such a complicated disease process when they get really advanced kidney disease and when they go to dialysis that utilizing other people to help them out and be support is is what we do because I can't do everything. So what's different then with uh, hemodialysis and peritoneal dialysis with the management? First off, to remind people that once they start dialysis, it does not mean that their kidneys are not working at all. It's not like a light switch that you turn them off. They reach a point, we put them on dialysis or renal replacement therapy, as we call uh, either hemo or PD. Once they are symptomatic, uh, we're not able to control their fluid status or the electrolytes or their acid base or the azotemia that develops. But people can still be making urine. They have residual renal function, as we call it, for many years sometimes. People that are on dialysis for even five or 10 years, they can still be making urine. And so they still have some small degree of kidney function. And we use that to our advantage for managing fluid, but it will then affect their medications, things we can use for control of diabetes and things like that. Once somebody's completely anuric and they're not making any urine, that's an indication to us that their kidneys are completely non-functional. We see things like no more proteinuria once they don't have that loss. So there's less uh, trouble with low albumin and, and the third spacing problem. Um, and, but it does then affect how their sugars are. Sometimes the, all of a sudden their sugars are even more problematic that people have been on insulin or medications for years. They're all of a sudden telling me, oh, I'm not a diabetic anymore. Well, you are a diabetic. It just means that you don't need medication. You're now, you're, because of your kidney failure, you're diet controlled. You only need to watch your uh, medication, your food, control your diabetes because the medications aren't needed anymore because of the kidney failure. PD and hemo are very similar in terms of the diabetes part of it. There's obviously many other differences there. Once we get into patients that get a kidney transplant, because the transplant medications have a lot of interactions with other medications, we work very closely with the transplant centers to say, these are the medications that we need to be giving to control their diabetes or their hypertension or whatever, 
And is that going to cause some interaction with their transplant medications? Because patients are on prednisone post-transplant for many years, that can cause some hyperglycemia problems. Some of the things like cyclosporin can cause some hyperglycemia. And so people post-transplant can develop worsening diabetes. Now, some of our patients who have diabetes and who have kidney problems can actually get a kidneyous pancreas transplant. And that is like a new life. All of a sudden, they're not a dialysis patient and don't have diabetes. That falls in the miracle category. And that's what my patients all are hoping for. And I think that brings our conversation full circle. Because when we see people who are able to, because of today's technology and today's expertise, get that kidney pancreas transplant, we see it as the world has changed. It is. It really is. It really is. So, And the one other thing about dialysis in terms of glycemic control, patients that are, are on perineal dialysis, the perineal dialysis is very different from hemo is that we, we use a glucose loading fluid that goes intra-abdominally into their perineum to help pull the fluid and the toxins and things like that. But it's a glucose-based solution and patients can get very hyperglycemic and people that are more quote, brittle diabetic or more unstable, they're very sensitive to those glucose loads uh, if they're a perineal dialysis patient. One of the fluids that they utilize is something called extraneal, and they'd have it on during the day because it's not sucrose-based, it's maltose-based. But And it's not so much anymore in probably in the last two or three years, but you go back five or ten years ago when it first came out, people were having severe hypoglycemic events because the glucose meters were picking up the glucose. That was an interfering substance. Absolutely. Boy, wow. Correct. Exactly. So, but thankfully, thankfully, the, the, they've changed the strips and the, and the uh, meters. But we, we always ask patients to make sure that they have a new meter and the new strips and things like that. Because if they have had been using the same machine for a long time and they're a PD patient, that can be a problem. That's a great point. And uh, Medicare t- expects to replace those meters every four to five years. The life expectancy of a glucose meter is about three to five years. And if you have to buy one over the counter, they're about $20 now, not 120 Right, like it used to be. That's exactly. Well, do you have any other thoughts or things as we kind of tie this up? You know, Tim, this has been a great discussion, and I want to thank you. I have learned so much from you. And I think our patients are going to walk away with a lot of hope because the people who are listening to this podcast are going to take these pearls and share them with people with diabetes. So I I say thank you to you for your expertise. And I say it right back to you. I've learned so much. It's uh, wonderful working with you on this topic. And I'm just amazed at the knowledge base that you have and, and just able to whip out all that information at the drop of the hat. So it's been great working with you as well. Well, thank you very, very much. Thank you, Tim and Debbie, for sharing your perspectives and insights on this extremely important topic. It's been a great segment. Your dedication, your passion, and your experience really came through. To our listeners, I hope you found this episode educational and can apply some of what was discussed to your practice. 
If you want to learn more about chronic kidney disease and diabetes and earn continuing education credit, visit the AMPC Center at aamp.org slash CE Center. Mm-hmm.